1: That is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem.
2: I speak tonight for the dignity of man.
0: Ah, yes, we do have problems. We do have opportunities. The drug war has been going on a long time. Racial violence has been going on a long time. And the struggle in Israel and Palestine has been going on a very, very long time, at least since 1948, the creation of the State of Israel. And it just doesn't seem to get anywhere. It just goes on and on and on. It seems peace talks kind of get started, and then they fall apart, and the violence continues. And, uh, of course, the summer of 2014, there was that huge war on Gaza in which many, many Civilians, at least in Gaza, were killed and some uh, Israelis were killed as well. What is the right thing? What can be done about it? Is there any degree of hope? Is hope even possible? Can we understand Israel and Palestine? This, we're uh, very pleased to have with us the author of a new book called Understanding Israel-Palestine, Race, Nation, and Human Rights in the Conflict, Dr. Eve Spangler. Thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive.
1: Thank you for having me on the show, Bert.
0: Well, this book provides a new point of entry into the long and difficult conversation about Israel and Palestine. It offers an analysis of the most commonly heard Israeli positions, as well as Palestinian voices that we don't often hear. Spangler argues that human rights standards have never been used as the basis on which the Israeli-Palestinian conflict should be resolved, and that only these standards can produce a just and sustainable resolution. Wouldn't that be nice to happen sometime in our lifetime? Well, our, our guest, uh, Dr. Eve Spangler, is a sociologist and a human and civil rights activist, and for the last decade, her work has focused on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Well, Thanks again for being with us. Both your parents were Holocaust survivors committed to social justice. I understand they didn't really talk about Israel. Why not, as a general rule? Uh,
1: No, they didn't very much. I think, uh, you know, when families have this Holocaust history, and my family was was devastated by it, the uncles who were in the camps, the grandmother who is a Holocaust non-survivor, I think when you have that kind of history, there are at least two paths forward. Probably the more common one is some variant of Zionism, some belief that Jews need a special, dedicated, safe house, a place of their own. Uh, But my parents took the other path, which was to say, you know, the Holocaust is the most horrific example of state-sponsored violence ever in their lifetime. Sadly, there have been many more since. Um, But their position was that you should always be Skeptical and vigilant about states, and you should be committed to human rights and to monitoring and holding states accountable. And that is a path that I think is less publicized, less talked about, but nevertheless uh, a very real path. And so, uh, no, they were not very interested in Israel. Uh, they didn't talk about it a lot. Uh, my earliest memory, we used to. Uh, they were immigrants, and they, you know, taught themselves English out of the New York Times. <laughs> and yeah. So uh-huh. I was the geekiest little kid in history, and I went to kindergarten saying, the Dow Jones average closed down five points today, and things like that. Um, but, you know, I remember we listened to the international national news on WQXR, the radio station of the New York Times, mm. every day at mm. dinner. And then we turned off the radio and discussed international events. Nice. And so the earliest memory I have of any mention being made of Israel is 1956, the invasion by England, France, and Israel of Egypt, the Suez Canal incident. And I remember then saying to my father, Daddy, if everybody hates Jews as much as Auntie Sylvia says they do, why would you want to put them all in one place? Ah. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I, I didn't have the vocabulary at that age to... Describe myself as skeptical about Zionism as a political project, but there you are.
0: Wow, fascinating! And I, I recently read a very, frankly, wonderful book called "A Peace to End All Peace." It was huh, a, yes. It was about the history of the British and the demise of the Ottoman Empire just about a hundred years ago. And, of course, uh, it did talk about the uh, creation of the state of Israel and the uh, the place of, of, of Zionism. It yielded a lot of insights to me as to how we got where we are today. Uh, can, can you give us a, a brief synopsis of how Israel came to be a Jewish state and what that means for the people living in the conflicted area, Israel and Palestine, and uh, the, the founding of Israel, according to the Palestinians, I believe it's called the Nakbar, something like yes. that.
1: And, and, uh, the catastrophe, that's the Arab word for catastrophe.
0: Yeah. So.
1: Uh, okay, well, let me uh, take a stab at it. Uh, and there are convergent paths. Um, the British, of course, were in charge from the end of World War One right. uh, to so from 1918 until 1948, of uh, the whole area of Palestine uh, as, as part of the League of Nations mandate system. So that was Mandate Palestine. And the British played a pretty unsavory role. They had agreed with the French even before the end of World War I that they would divide up the Ottoman lands amongst themselves, the British and the French, right. and that the British would get Palestine as part of that deal. Mm-hmm. So they promised the land to themselves. Then in uh, 1917, they promised it to the Zionists in the Balfour Declaration, and then around the same time, they were urging uh, Arabs in uh, Jordan and Saudi, what is now Jordan and Saudi Arabia, to create a, a rear front against the Ottomans and, and split their efforts. And they promised them uh, a very carefully undefined area that might have included Palestine. They promised excuse me, that to the Arabs, So they were, as somebody on a YouTube put it gently, over-promisers, and, you know, that creates some of the problem. But I think there's a a more uh, profound analysis possible, Um, and and I think it's helpful to an American audience if we think about the analogy between the Civil Rights Movement and Zionism. You have Jews in Christian Europe historically the object of very nasty discrimination and prejudice, Some of it murderous, some of it milder, but very ugly. Yes. And the same is true for African Americans in America. There's that ugly history of slavery and lynchings and Jim Crow and so forth. And so the black community in America and the Jewish community in Christian Europe uh, were beset and beleaguered. And most of the individuals in those communities chose some sort of strategy of assimilation of just wanting to keep their heads down and go along to get along, because, you know, for most people, just going to work and getting the kids to school and remembering to send your mother-in-law a birthday card (laughs) is is work enough. Um, And then those who had more energy and were more forward-looking and more courageous, there was the Civil Rights Movement uh, in black America in various incarnations, but always present over the years. And there was often for Jews in Europe socialism as a struggle for social and economic justice. Yes. In both of those communities, there was a very small minority that thought, nothing we do will work, and we've just got to get out of here. We
2: hmm.
1: And that is the Back to Africa movement, in the Civil Rights movement, oh, right. uh, and Zionism in the European Jewish experience. Uh, the hmm. desire to reestablish a safe house, a room of one's own somewhere else. Uh, hmm. And so I think Americans can understand it best through that analogy. Now, of course, you have to say at the outset that Israel was economically hugely more successful than Liberia. But hmm. apart from that, the, the parallels between the Back to Africa movement and Zionism are quite startling. Both of them uh, were rejected by the majority of people who they were trying to recruit who said, you want us to go where? Um, And so they weren't a majority movement in either community. They persisted uh, on the basis of the organizational skills of their leaders who could lobby governments, who could raise funds Mm -hmm. and recruit settlers. They had allies, some of whom were real champions of human rights and human freedom and thought, I'm going to help people to go where they want to go but many of whom were quite unsavory, white people who were very happy to get black people out of white America, yes. Christian anti-Semites who were very happy to help you leave uh, Christian Europe.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: both of the places, both movements, Zionism and Back to Africa, were pretty opportunistic about mm-hmm. where they chose to establish their colonies, basically in lands that colonial powers ceded to them. And both of them rode roughshod over the... Uh, rights of the native inhabitants whom they wish to displace in order to build that safe house, that room of their own. Hmm. So I I think you you know, that's a very short sighted history. Yeah, but it's but
0: a, it's a good I, I one.
1: We have to understand Zionism as a project of European Jews to build an ethno religiously exclusive state in an area that is historically extremely multicultural.
0: Interesting, yeah. And uh, you're looking at it from a very different uh, point of view. And the whole, I, I think, uh, the idea of a state, of nationalism. Nationalism is a movement that came out of the 19th century and and had the result of creating the uh, horrible First World War, to me completely unnecessary and useless yeah. First World War. And that was based on nationalism. And Judaism itself has it's been around for thousands of years. And, and and nationalism is, I think, something else. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here. Our guest today is Dr. Eve Spangler. Her uh, new book is called Understanding Israel slash Palestine. And you, Dr. Spangler, you look at it, from, you're a sociologist. There have yeah. been, I don't know how many books written about Israel, Palestine, probably thousands. Tell us about the optic of sociology for looking at this issue that has been looked at from so many different points of view.
1: I get to go sociology on you. Okay. Sure. Um, (laughs) So uh, let me try to be succinct here. So sociologists look, of course, at the behavior of individuals, and we recognize that there's a great deal of choice in the behavior of individuals and, and agency, even in the most repressive and restrictive circumstances, as every uh, concentration camp memoir and jail memoir will tell you, there are people who make choices to collaborate with guards. There are people who make choices to resist. There are people who remain hopeful. There are people who give up hope. So we look at individual behavior uh, as resulting from choices that people make. Um, And we try then also... To keep an eye on aggregating if you count up all the choices made across a community what patterns do you see emerging but most importantly we recognize that while people make choices they don't make them in a vacuum they don't make them against a blank slate they don't make them on a level playing field people make choices in an environment and that environment makes certain choices easier than others and if you just think we're departing from Israel-Palestine for a moment, if you think about in America how much easier it is to get junk food than healthy food, uh, you know how much easier it is to buy garments if you're not going to insist on them being sweatshop-free, and so on and so forth. We all make choices, but we make them against a background that tilts the playing field. And so you know, a really terrible example of that uh, from very current, from the Israeli-Palestinian situation is the killing of the uh, 18-month-old child last week by a settler in the West Bank who opened a window and lobbed a firebomb into a family home um, in a community that hadn't in any way uh, offended or resisted the settlement uh, from which the assailants came, um, and lobbed a firebomb into a home, and as a result, an 18-month-old baby is dead, and His four-year-old brother is in critical condition and may also die, and his mother is in critical condition. Now, that is a choice of behavior that was chosen by that particular masked, probably settler, uh, in the West Bank. But it was not a choice made on a level playing field. If this person is, as everyone supposes, a settler, their whole life has been dedicated, is grounded in illegality. The settlements are illegal under the Geneva Convention um absolutely illegal, every single one of them. And so this is a person who's choosing to live in a community grounded in illegality. This is a person who's choosing to live in a community grounded in illegality and supported by the Israeli government materially. Uh, they deploy guards to protect the settlements. They build settler only, Jewish only roads. Uh they connect settlements to the water system and the power grid. So they're materially, they're financially, and they're culturally supported with uh, tax breaks yeah. and so forth uh, by the State of Israel. This is a person who made a choice living in an environment where he has seen some of his peers uh, burning Palestinian olive orchards. Yeah. And he's seen the Israeli Defense Forces stationed in the West Bank protect the arsonists and not the farmers. Um This is a person living in an environment where Rabbi Eli Ben-Dahan, who's now the second in command in the West Bank in the military occupation of Palestinians, has announced, this is a rabbi, that Palestinians are not human beings. They're Mm. subhuman animals. Mm. And so with each of those steps an illegal settlement, state support for the illegal settlement, military support for arsonists, a rabbi who says Palestinians aren't human, the playing field tilts further and further downhill into this abysmal choice of firebombing a house and killing an infant. And so, you know, most often sociologists deal with situations less tragic than the one I've just outlined, but the idea of understanding human behavior, human choice as occurring in a context, that I think is the heart of sociology.
0: The context, yes, the context that he was in, and you know we hear especially you know in america the mainstream media has talked a lot about the missiles that came in from gaza and you know heard the story from is, israeli's uh, who felt like well we have to fight back again we have to be protected from that the violence has, has just gone on and on and on and it just seems to escalate we've heard uh, calls from uh, the uh, the is the the Palestinians death to Israel uh, from from various people you know from the Iranians death to Israel and we get that side for it what have you seen as a sociologist you know we've heard stories as you just told about atrocities you um, you, you have actually, in your book, you talk about some, some hopeful signs. What kind of hopeful signs uh, did you see there that maybe changing the context, do you think?
1: Well, I think, uh, so let me say that I got interested in this about 12 years ago and started reading, and then I uh, developed a seminar for the fall semester at Boston College about human rights and the conflict, and then I thought because by then I had gone and seen stuff myself a couple of times, I thought, you know, people really need to see this. And so I designed the course to include a field trip over winter break. And so for seven years now, I've been taking students um, to interview, uh, to see and to observe and to interview uh, mostly human rights activists, both Israelis and Palestinians. And so um, I've seen personally, I think a great many things which I think, in spite of the rhetoric and in spite of what I regard as disastrous politicians on both sides, right. uh, I've seen uh, possibilities of hope. We have allies over there. We have people working uh, to to live a, a more just and sustainable life in Israel and Palestine. So, uh, for example, uh, in Nablus, which is one of the most militant cities in the West Bank, There's a community who call themselves the Samaritans, and they are Jewish. They practice Jewish worship. Uh, They use the Old Testament and the Torah as the basis for their community. They're acknowledged as uh, Jews by the Israeli uh, government that gives them uh, Israeli passports and Israeli license plates. And they live in Nablus, in this very militant city, completely unmolested. They have no quarrel with and, and are not afraid. Of their Palestinian neighbors. And, you know, I've talked with Palestinians and novelists who are very anti occupation. Sure. And I said, well, what about those Jewish guys across the street there, the Samaritans? And they say, oh, no, those are Arab Jews. They've been here for centuries and they come as our neighbors. They don't come as our conquerors. Hmm. We have no problem with them. Hmm. And, you know, I'd heard that statement we have no problem with people who come as neighbors, only people who come as conquerors before. And I thought, well, you know, that's a nice hashtag. But there I saw it live and in person. Um, You can meet if you go there, and one of the things I recommend is that people do find ways to go there because you only have to see it once. Um, We meet many people, uh, both Israelis and Palestinians, who are working for justice, Israelis with other Israelis, Palestinians with other Palestinians, and even you know, incredibly courageously, Israelis and Palestinians working with one another. Mm. Uh, even you know, to me, sort of unimaginable. Uh, there's a group called Parents Circle of the Bereaved, and these are uh, originally it was only parents, and now more broadly families who've lost uh, a family member to the other side, to violence from the other side. So, Israeli Jewish families who've lost a child to a suicide bomber, for example and Palestinian families who've lost a child to a checkpoint shooting or incident. And they are reaching out to each other in their bereavement to say, this is not sustainable, you know, we want our grandchildren to have a better life, and and who are working on that. So, you know, we have partners, I think, as Americans, um, who who are working in, in a very helpful way to change the context change the definitions that the governments are pumping out, that this is an intractable mm. enmity and that only the death of the other side will, you know, advance your interests.
0: Wow. I, and I remember, of course, during the America's War in Vietnam, uh, there was the official line from the government, but not everybody was in agreement with that. There was a tremendous amount of dissent, and the world knew that not all Americans agreed with uh, Johnson and then Nixon's policy in Vietnam. There were a lot of people who felt like, you know, just killing and making them the total enemy isn't going to work. And now, uh, 50 years later, after the start of the war in Vietnam, one of the things that you reminded me that I've spoken with uh, Vietnam veterans who have gone back to Vietnam and have gone and become friends with people when they were shooting at each other They, p- with people they were trying to kill and, yeah. and people who were trying to kill them and and they find that is the only thing that really really heals has some actual healing power how much of what you were describing is really going on in israel i'm sure there's a lot of disagreement there there's people on the hard right incredible racists and militarists but what about the, the people there, there's lots and lots of Israelis, and there must be lots and lots of opinions. Do you sense any any trend toward, you know, a, a different kind of approach, change in the context?
1: Uh, well, <laughs> not uh, not a huge trend and mm. uh, not nearly enough. But let me say, just as we have that's uh, who are going back to Vietnam, uh, one of the most moving stories I was told is that a uh, former Israeli soldier, and uh, a very philosophical guy. In fact, he's a Ph.D. candidate at Harvard in philosophy. But he told the story of growing up as a, a boy in a very happy home. He adores his father, and he knew that his father had fought in the Yom Kippur War uh, against Palestinians in 1973. And, you know, he was a kid. He didn't think over much about it. But when he thought about it, he thought, well, I know my father's a good man, so, I know he would have only killed bad people, because I know he's a good man. Oh. And then, you know, this young man himself was drafted into the army and saw what he saw in Hebron and thought it was completely morally untenable and began working both with Combatants for Peace, uh, which is, again, one of those organizations where Israelis and Palestinians are working together, mm-hmm. but most importantly with Breaking the Silence in Israeli a group of former soldiers who are saying to Israeli society, you are enacting this occupation on the backs of your 18- to 22-year-old children. Here are some photographs. Look at what you're asking your children to do. Is that what you want? And he said to me, you know, the first time he went to a meeting, he came away terrified, and not because he thought he'd be kidnapped or shot, but because he met a guy who also a Palestinian who fought in the Yom Kippur War and even in the same some of the same battles that his father had fought in, and who could have either killed his father or been killed by his father, and he said to me as I sat and talked with oh. him, hmm. I saw that he too was a good man, and then I got scared because I realized my whole life was based on a lie, hmm. and I had to rebuild it from the ground up. Now you know I find that story deeply moving, but I think. Relatively few people engage in that level of courageous self-criticism and self-reflection. So um, there is certainly a range of opinion in Israel, but for my purposes as a human rights advocate, it's a trunk—it's a somewhat truncated range, except in very rare exceptions. Mm. Uh, on the hard right, there's, you know, hatred and the intent to continue annexing and ethnically cleansing. Yeah. But on the left, there is a more pragmatic, you know, we're not going to have peace until they have peace, so let's do a land-for-peace deal. But the basis of it is not moral. It's purely pragmatic. And it, does, it doesn't it does rest on the belief that Palestinians actually have rights. It's simply... Uh, rests on the assumption that they don't have rights, but we can do better by being more generous rather than harsher. Um, It's not a rights-based left. um, And so that sounds like an oxymoron, a rights-based left, but you know what I mean. I do. Um, And so the the whole, the, the real place where I think forward motion can come from is the starting assumption that there are uh, more than 12 million people between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. Each and every one of them is a human being. Uh Each and every one of them is a rights-bearing subject, and all of their rights need to be respected.
0: Wow. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Live, Bert Cohen here. Our guest is Eve Spangler. Her new book, Understanding Israel-Palestine, Race, Nation, and Human Rights in the Conflict. The human rights framework, it hasn't often come up for sure, and it's like <laughs> sort of the elephant of the room. It's big, yeah. it's there, but nobody talks about it. What is the human rights framework in the history of this very, very difficult region?
1: Well, um, I think here uh, human rights works really well with history. So um, I, I'm sure you have a very literate audience, but let me just establish a tiny fact base. So um, Israel and Palestine together are slightly larger than the state of New Jersey. And that sort of New Jersey-sized plot of land is situated at the eastern end of the Mediterranean, where it's the land bridge between Europe and Asia and Africa and Asia. And so it has been, from biblical times and even before that, one of the most multicultural, multiethnic, multilingual, multiracial, multi-everything places on the globe, um, including, for purposes of this particular conflict, way back in biblical times, there are Israelites there. There are also, at the same time, as we know from the Bible, the Canaanite population, the Philistines. Philistine is the Arabic word for Palestine. So from biblical times forward, there are Israelis and Palestinian, Israelites and Palestinians living in that place. Many of the people who are there today are descendants of those early populations, and many are not. Many are more recent immigrants,
2: oh, yeah.
1: um, all the fallout of political events in the world. So the human rights bedrock has to be no one gets killed, no one gets pushed into the sea, all of the people who are there, who care about the place, who were born there, whose perhaps grandparents' graves are there. They all get to stay, but they all get to stay on the terms that they have to be treated right they have to have equal rights, they have to have access to the state, they have to have access to water, to land, to security and the paradox is that you you have a little more than 12 million people there, almost exactly evenly divided between Mm. Israeli Jews on the one hand and Palestinian Christians and Muslims on the other, but they are organized, this is the the, the gap between individuals and context they are organized in such unequal communities the Israeli state being a powerful economically modern highly weaponized state that uh, enjoys almost unlimited American military diplomatic and financial support yes the Palestinians a stateless people many of them refugees um, who have no rights who live under a military occupation, that produces a 99% conviction rate in its courts, mm. Uh, mm. and a, a population that has no rights. Mm. And that is, I think, profoundly morally wrong and happily also quite unsustainable. Unsustainable. So we've got to figure out how to do better.
0: Yeah, I mean, if people aren't going Think about anybody that we know, ourselves. If we had our rights denied, if we were treated as, you know, less than human... Are we going to sit there and do nothing about it and just accept it and be peaceful? We try to be peaceful, of course, but that you know not everybody uh, can do that. And and it just I can't imagine how difficult it is when one doesn't have rights and it's locked into law that they don't have rights. What do you say to people who insist that the security for the state of Israel requires strict control from above? of Palestinian populations, including measures such as hundreds of checkpoints and that infamous partition wall. What do you say to them who insist, without such things, Israel has no security?
1: Well, I I say go directly to Plan B, (laughs) uh, because, uh, and I don't mean to be flippant, but I Hmm. have some uh, pretty significant support on my side for saying You know, if you insist on a project of putting yourself in a stockade and suppressing everybody around you, this is not a sustainable project. Uh, And I'm, you know, I draw on opinions of people like Martin Buber, who said that excessive nationalism would lead only to, quote, a tiny state of Jews, completely militarized and unsustainable.
2: Mm.
1: Or Hannah Arendt, who said a Jewish homeland never be sacrificed to, quote, the pseudo-sovereignty of the Jewish state built on Arab suppression. So when I say, you know, this is not a sustainable project, I feel like I'm in very good company. Um, you know, there's a dilemma for, for, not for Jews, not for Israelis, but for Zionism as a political yes. project to build an ethno-religiously exclusive state in a land that is so multicultural what do you do with the people who aren't part of your group um, so you know israel has said it wants three things it wants to be jewish it wants to be democratic and it wants to have all the land well half of the people in that land are not jewish so those three things don't fit together you could be i guess jewish and democratic i'm personally a civil libertarian and i prefer separation of church and state yes but you could be jewish and democratic If you abandoned the settlements and withdrew to those land areas where Jews are a supermajority, and then you could be a smaller state uh, that was Jewish and and democratic, or mostly democratic. Uh, The present Israeli regime has said that's not in the cards. That's not a discussable option. They will never abandon the settlements. You could live in the entire land along with your Palestinian neighbors and have a democracy, if you didn't insist on being an ethno-religious ethnocracy, right? If you were a Mm. democratic state of all your people, you could have a binational variant of that, where legally uh, you you respect both uh, or all three Christian, Muslim, and Jewish traditions around marriage and burial and family inheritances and so forth. Uh, That also, the Israeli government has said, is not a discussable option. So then the third option is you can have all the land and be a Jewish-dominated society, but then you have Mm. to suppress or expel 50% of the people under your control. And, you know, that's not only ugly in theory, but then, you know, one of the things Breaking the Silence tells us in their book, Our Harsh Logic, is that you then have, you know, thousands of troops trying to control millions of Palestinians, and that tilts the playing field, that makes a context where being capricious and cruel is more effective than respecting people's rights, because if you're reasonable and rights-based, you're predictable, and then people who resist you have kind of got your number. But if you're capricious and cruel, then nobody really knows what to expect next. You can maybe tyrannize people, at least temporarily, into submission. So once you commit yourself to occupation, there's a whole lot of other things that follow from that, and not every soldier succumbs to the
2: temptation
1: that it's more efficient, it's easier if you're capricious and cruel. But enough of them do, that it's a pretty ugly situation.
0: And yet, we, we had uh, what what really was a powerful instrument in ending America's war in Vietnam was the veterans, our veterans, who came back and saw these outrageous, horrible atrocities and stood up and said something about it, and they concern about human rights and how it wasn't sustainable. The, if you didn't have the support of the people, the government is, is not going to stand forever, no matter how much military support there is. And there's this militarily imposed situation, especially on the people of Gaza, that were just yeah. Devas- devastated. Yeah. And yeah. Th- there's been, we, we've heard talk often of a a much hoped for two-state Solution, which would create the independent state of Palestine alongside Israel. It's gained a fair amount of traction among Israelis, Palestinians, and many in the U.S. uh, throughout the 20th century and into the 21st century. Why, after being thought a good idea for so long, do we see a a new discussion, a more energetic discussion of a one-state option?
1: Well, I think, uh, you know, (laughs) let me digress for just a moment. A lot of us in seminars uh, use icebreakers at the first meeting, and uh, the icebreaker I always use is to ask my students, what's the best question you were ever asked? And the best question I was ever asked is, if it's such a good idea, why isn't it already happening? And personally for me, that's a great question because it keeps me humble when I get to thinking I should be queen of the world you know it it, it it reminds me that all these good ideas I have if they're such good ideas why aren't other people also seeing it but I think that question applies very much to this situation and again history is helpful here the so-called universally agreed upon two-state solution was quote unquote universally agreed upon by the colonial powers uh, first mm-hmm. the British and then all of those voting at the U.N. in 1947 for General Assembly uh, non-binding Resolution 181, to divide Palestine between uh, an Israeli Jewish state and a Palestinian Muslim state. Neither the Zionists already in residence in Palestine at the time, nor the Palestinians thought that this division was a good idea. And if we now bring in the 21st century concern about sustainability, You're talking about creating two countries out of New Jersey, North New Jersey and South New Jersey. Um, These are statelets, right? Um, And so the inhabitants were never enthusiastic about this plan. This was a plan that Whitehall was enthusiastic about, Washington was enthused about, Langley was enthused about, But, but not the inhabitants. And now we've given it, you know, a minimum of 48 years and maybe closer to 70 years. And not only has it not been realized, but every day it's further from being realized and further from being possible because of the expansion of Israeli settlements into what could have been a contiguous, sovereign, viable Palestinian state. So, you know, if after a minimum of 48 years, your wonderful idea is every day further from being realizable, Mm -hmm. at some point someone's got to break the frame and say, you know what? Maybe we need another good idea. Mm. And so, in many places now, people are beginning. Palestinian intellectuals are talking about a one-state solution, which would be a single democratic state from the river to the sea, a state of all its people. Um, some Israelis are talking about that, ironically, mostly on the far right, who are saying, "Oh, the hell with this occupation! Let's just go ahead and annex them." Um, mm. Many of the ministers in the Netanyahu government are taking that position. So both from the left and from the right, there's kind of a recognition that when you just look at a map and you think about the, the way the settlements have eaten up Palestine, and, you know, the settlements are not just randomly placed, they're very strategically placed mm. to control Palestinian water and aquifers, bisect oh and trisect the West Bank to create a network of settler-only roads that further sliver one Palestinian community from another. Um, it is really not possible, I think, to, to see a viable, contiguous, Palestinian, sovereign Palestinian state in this in this land area, and that is by Israeli choosing. Right. Now, of course, Israelis, the first choice, I think, for the Israeli government is to just continue indefinitely occupying and building settlements and gobbling up land and getting European and American taxpayers to support the Palestinian Authority so that the occupation doesn't even cost Israel very much financially.
2: Oh, wow. Um, Hmm.
1: But, you know, it may be that for a variety of reasons, uh, that first choice becomes untenable because the Palestinian Authority collapses or because something else happens in the region so it's very hard to predict the future but i think the most important thing that we in america can work on changing is america's uncritical support financial military diplomatic for israel we may not be able ultimately to tell either the israelis or the palestinians what to do right we do have the right to tell our government what to do
0: yeah the power of APEC has to come up in any kind of discussion here they have it it amazes me my sense is that apac is is beyond the control of of even the israelis it's just this uh kind of rogue group that has tremendous power in the united states congress and they just uh are calling the shots in so many different ways and somehow i don't suspect that they're looking at anything other than the militarist uh you know Keep the wall of separation. Support the settlers, and it just goes on and on and on. D- there's this new group, uh, J Street, and there's uh, a Jewish Voice for Peace. That's what I was yeah. thinking of. Yes, and I-, I wonder what you see with regard to what you're talking about. Uh, the how essential human rights is to the discussion. Are any of these groups uh, talking about that and making any progress with that here in the uh, you know where the money comes from?
1: Well, uh, they don't have a lot of money, but Jewish Voice for Peace and American Jews for a Just Peace certainly are, rights, uh, are promoting a rights based discourse. Uh, J Street, I think, is more, at least their officials, I think their rank and file membership may be more to their left, but the officials are essentially mm-hmm. trying to save Israel from itself, mm-hmm. uh, reaching with the settlements. Um, APEC, you know, far be it from me to defend APEC, APEC is, is a scourge. Uh, and they are now set to take the entire freshman class of Congress people to Israel to try to uh, sabotage the Iran oh all, mm. all but three of uh, the freshman Congress people. But this is something that the constituents of those Congress people can have a say in. Yes. Uh, you know there can be calling campaigns. There can be petitions saying to people, "Hey, what are you doing?" But on the other hand, I think it also has to be said. Because APEC is often described as the tail that wags the dog.
2: Yes. Mm.
1: APEC has never moved America in a direction the American political establishment didn't want to go. Mm-hmm. America has never been a champion of national liberation struggles, not in Central America, uh, not in Vietnam, not in Africa. We've generally sided with the colonial powers. Yeah. And so, you know, APEC is not unaligned. And the other thing that has to be remembered is that in giving Israel $10 billion a year in foreign aid and supporting the Palestinian Authority and giving them $3 billion a year in military aid, what we're doing is giving them a credit card to buy American weapons. And so the human rights movement and the peace movement also have to think about how do we move forward on peace and justice without crashing the economy? what do we do with defense industry jobs, which are among the last unionized industrial jobs mm. in the country? And if you don't have any conversion economics, in my opinion, conversion from military to non-military uh, uses, then you're not a serious peace movement. And mm. that's a missing piece of our discourse that, that needs to be developed.
0: Interesting point, I, which I love to see come back to uh, one of my Favorite uh, uh, ideas. It's it's an old idea. It's called the New Deal, creating jobs, uh, put you know public works jobs, that uh-huh. uh, that do things good for America. Because at, you're right, right now the only real public works jobs are uh, military jobs, defense related yeah. jobs, billions and billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars being spent on that but they the politicians have to hear from the people and we are not powerless there's no question we are not uh powerless what what do you say to you know the the subject we started out talking about the holocaust you know, your parents generation uh, my parents generation uh and they say there are people now, uh, I think it's Mike Huckabee of all wackos, yeah. saying <laughs> that, you know, if if there's not Israel there, if we don't have the walls and the, you know, uh, discrimination, that there'll be another Holocaust. Do you think people buy that? I mean, that argument is used all the time to justify anything and everything Israel ever does. How do you see that uh, playing into it? it, it
1: no, I, of course I don't buy it uh you know i mean there were jews living safely throughout the muslim world before the advent of zionism including in palestine it, it's very rare that uh you could meet a palestinian in palestine our age who couldn't tell you oh yes i remember my mother going to the jewish doctor i remember my dad going to the jewish tailor um, and so the notion that Americans have bought, which is Israeli propaganda pure and simple,
2: yeah. is
1: that Israel is what makes Jews safe. Well, I don't see that. Um, General Petraeus didn't see it when he said Israeli conduct is Mer- making Americans less safe around the world. Um, i You know, I think human rights is what makes people safe, and, you know, insisting that the political order has to move in that direction, that in the face of the Challenges of the 21st century, which to me are multiculturalism within a state right. system and sustainability, environmental sustainability, that human rights have to be the bedrock of that. That is what makes me feel more safe or less safe, is how we're doing with that project. To go and live in a stockade built on dispossessing and suppressing my neighbors, I, I don't see how that promotes safety. No. Um, and even from the most sort of realist point of view, You know, there are 7 billion people in the world. Less than 1% of them are Jews. Jews are 2% of the American population. More than half the Jews in the world choose not to live in Israel. And so for Israel to believe that, A, it speaks for all Jews, and that its conduct promotes safety when, you know, through the settlements, for example, it's absolutely shredding international law. Why would a population group that's less than 1% of humanity want to shred international law. Uh, I mean, don't you then just leave the playing field to the schoolyard bully? Mm. Why why would you want to do that? Why would you want to strip yourself of the protection of saying, we're playing by the rules, let's hold everybody else to that standard? So I I think, you know, America is saturated with the idea that somehow Israel speaks for all Jews. It's what's keeping Jews safe. And that, you know, to question that is to be anti-Semitic. And I absolutely reject that discourse.
0: And I feel like a lot of the behavior of Israel has has done great harm to the diaspora, we Jews across the world, because people think it's uh, one and the same. And people have said about the discussion of human rights, oh, this is silly, this is namby-pamby, it's not going to happen, Jimmy Carter talked a lot about human rights and having a a foreign policy based on human rights. He met with huge criticism when he likened the Israeli occupation to apartheid. From what I've seen, it doesn't seem like a stretch at all. Apartheid, it seems, become a common framework for describing Israeli-Palestinian relations. And I I, I wonder, you know, can human rights become taken seriously because it, it just seems to me that if you don't have that, well, guess what? They're never going to stop fighting.
1: Well, I, you know, I, I don't know whether it can a whole lot, of course, you know, because anybody who tries to tell you what the future holds is right. asking to be made a fool of. But, I, you know, certainly we have, uh, God knows, an imperfect democracy, but we do have the freedom to speak, to assemble, to meet with our Congress people, to hold them accountable. Um, And, you know, we see that nothing good comes of violating human rights, whether it's in Ferguson or it's in Palestine. And so, you know, it's up to us, I think, uh, grassroots, ordinary people in their churches, on their campuses, to say, uh, you know, you guys, the the realists, the people who, you know, want to leave the playing field to the schoolyard bully, you've had your day, and what is it that you've produced for us? Right. Um, You know, what is so wonderful? And I I do think we can be hopeful because, you know, in many places anti-colonial struggles have defeated uh, superior powers that were superior militarily and economically. The British have left India, the French have left Vietnam, the French have left Algeria, um, and they haven't perished in the process. Uh, But they certainly outgunned and outmanned the national liberation struggles that opposed them. And yet, you know, people's will to freedom and justice has prevailed. And it can, in this instance, too, what I think would be very helpful would be for the Palestinians to be clear with us. Are they waging a national liberation struggle? Are they still hoping for a two-state solution? Or have they acknowledged that that's probably not going to happen? And are they now going to wage a civil rights struggle within a single state? Oh, interesting. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that they opt the latter. Sam Bahur, who's a, a Palestinian-American founder of Paltel, wonderful guy and a wonderful speaker, I, he has a wonderful riff that he does where he says, his daughter uh, always says, you know, what we should do is say, hey, Israel, you've won, you've got all the land, You've got all the water, and hey, you've got all of us, too. Now, where do we go to sign up for our voter registration cards? Uh Could you tell us where to go sign up for our national health insurance cards? And I, I am hopeful, guardedly, not fast enough, but that things are moving in that direction.
0: Again, we're uh, talking with author Eve Spangler about her brand new book, Understanding Israel, Palestine, Race, Nation, and Human Rights in the Conflict. And again, it's looking at this conflict from a sociological uh, optic, which is, I think, very helpful uh, and and that the importance of human rights in really settling this, It, it can actually happen. And history is full of seemingly intractable conflicts, including ones you've mentioned between colonial settlers and indigenous populations, like here in America, and in the end got settled, of of course, sometimes with great injustice, for example, the American natives. What real shift in perspective might help this one? Is it possible, really? I always try to go out on a somewhat optimistic note. Uh,
1: Yes, I think it is possible, both, as I have said, because we have tools, we, we do have a great deal of political freedom and agency, and so we have, for example, a boycott, divestment, sanctions yes. movement, which is a nonviolent economic uh, way to bring pressure on Israel to uh, you know align itself better with human rights standards. Uh, we have the right to demand that our Congress uh, strip tax exemptions from organizations, churches, and and. Synagogues that build illegal settlements. Uh, we have all sorts of tools that we could use. We also have partners over there, and you know, aside from and I, I know that's you know a little bit like apart from that, Mrs. Lincoln, did you want like yeah. to play? Right. But aside from the politicians, <laughs> in fact, the Israeli and Palestinian populations, ordinary everyday people, are quite compatible. Those are two populations who are ferociously interested in education. Palestinians have the highest per capita Ph.D. rate of any Arab population. Really? These are both populations that are very entrepreneurial. Palestine had a favorable balance of trade with Europe for a century before Zionism came along. So, you know, when you think of the horrible situation for most people in the Middle East, a choice between authoritarian thugs who are secular and authoritarian thugs who are Islamists, mm. to create a, a, a single Israeli-Palestinian state that is educated and prosperous and entrepreneurial. You know, let's think for a moment about how that would allow young people all over the world to envision a better future. That's something worth fighting for. And sure we is. have tools for doing it. We have partners for doing it. So let's
0: get on with it. Yeah, human rights. What a concept. It really <laughs> it really can work with equality for all in one state there. Thank you so much. The book is Understanding Israel-Palestine, Race, Nation, and Human Rights in the Conflict. Eve Spangler is the author. Sense Publishers. Thank you so much for being with us on Keeping thank Democracy Alive*. Thank
1: you for the alive. invitation. It's been wonderful talking with you. Well, thank you.
2: thing,
3: The occupation started when Palestine was left broken hearted Hands down, you won't believe the way they laid they the their wrath on her Six feet under is where they left us, so bad The way that they were killing us, too bad We're not afraid to die when bombs fall from the sky Can't explain I never thought that we were gonna lose so bad They're all insane There's God to be away. How can we get back on track, now tell me how it's gonna be done Will we win or lose this one, don't care about the fact Cause they are in the lead, they say we all should be scared Palestine will never They're taking all our houses Palestine Right from all the corpses Tough luck They had to have the guns when all oh, We have our rights All day They're killing little babies So we're Defending our families They said That we were out of line Who's wrong? Who's break right this time? Can't explain I never thought that we were gonna lose so bad They're all insane There's got to be Done. Will we win or lose this one? The screaming. Allah Restore the ones to change Palestine. Yeah. It has to be the one to see Islam will shine. No matter what they try to say, there's got to be a way. How can we get back on track? Now tell me how it's gonna be done. Tell how it's gonna will be we win done. or lose this one. Don't care about the fact, cause they. should be scared, scared. say we all should be be scared, Palestine will never be.